how to study Torah. How can we maximize? How can we? Oh, welcome, welcome, welcome to this. Year. How can we maximize our study of Torah? What are the mechanics of the study of Torah? So, of course, we look to our rebbeim, and we hear their stories about their rebbeim and how they study Torah, and that's called a masara. One day, you'll tell your child. I learned by this Rebbe, who learned by Ravaran, who learned by the Rav, who learned by Rav Chaim. And you know, that's worth a lot, connecting people to the Masara. It's a very, very slippery thing. Religious identity is built on three legs. There's Halacha, there's Minhag, and there's Masara. Halacha is precise, universal, inalienable. You can never, ever, ever, period, cross a Halachic red line. Now, sometimes halacha demands that you cross a red line, but that's still internal halachic dynamics and internal halacha calculus. But the identity of an Orthodox Jew is halacha is inviolate. You never violate it. Of course, within the halachic system, there's flexibility sometimes to overtally one halacha with a different halacha. Then, of course, minag is the glue that binds us, the glue that allowed us to retain our identity through so much scattering across the nations and across the wilderness and across time. What is your minhag? And that's why Baruch Hashem, people are so proud of their minhagim. And part of the challenge of moving to Eretz Yisrael is even, it's easy to have your minhagim when you live in your community and these are my minhagim and I dive it in my shul and I eat my kashras and we have our... All of a sudden you get back to Eretz Yisrael and your identity changes. Your identity is much more national and much more integrated. And it's, it's a fascinating experiment in history What's going to happen with Minhagim in the next three, four generations in Israel? I'll give you an example. Okay, here's a good example. Is anyone in this room a Yeki? Okay, a little bit of a Yeki. Okay? I promise you that over the next couple of generations, your Yekish and Minhagim are going to slowly, slowly start to fade. Because unlike some other communities, Yeki don't really have. They've scattered out, maybe to their credit, scattered out. It used to be maybe two generations ago, maybe you heard stories about your great-grandparents who learned in Washington Heights and lived in a Yeki community where a lot of German Jews settled, but the German Jews integrated. And Yeki and Hagen were starting to fade. That's slowly starting to happen in Eretz Israel, and it's, it's a fascinating experiment in Jewish history. How will our religious identity fare when Minhagim start to be blurred? What will happen in two or three generations to Tefillah. Once Ashkenazim start davening like Svartim, and once Svartim start davening like Ashkenazim, how powerful will Minhagim play a role? Will there be other Minhagim that will take the place of previous Minhagim? There's no solution to this. This is uncharted territory. Some people feel that the disappearance of Minhagim and the transition of Minhagim is, is an anathema, is an apocalypse all of a sudden. But Minhag is the second part that holds religious identity together alongside of Halacha. Third part is Masar. Third part is knowing that you belong to something. I've told you this before. Very often, if I did, I apologize, some new boys in the class, very often a chassan kala will come to speak with me, and they'll ask me, we're planning our Shabbos meal, and we're planning, not this Shabbos, we're planning our Shabbos meals, our Shabbos environment, and we both are wondering whether it's a nice opportunity for my wife to make Kiddush, or my wife to make Hamotzi. After all, we are in a different era. Women are given a Torah education. They're looking for sincere, sincere religious expression. And after all, there's absolutely nothing wrong, halachically, with a woman making kiddush, let's say at night. Maybe in the morning there's an issue, but at night there's absolutely nothing wrong. She's chayiv and kiddush the exact same way you're chayiv and kiddush. She's chayiv and hamotzi the exact same way that you're chayiv and hamotzi. Call she yeshno b'shamor, yeshno b'zachor. Since she's chayiv and melacha Shabbos, she's chayiv and kiddush. Yantav may be different, but Shabbos, she's certainly just as chayiv and kiddush as you are. So I say, look. 
from a purely halachic calculus standpoint, you are absolutely correct. And I'll go even further. If you decide to adopt this policy, I will be happy to eat at your table, assuming the food is good. <laughs> There's nothing wrong, and I will be an honored guest. However, just deal with the issue in a sophisticated manner. You may not be violating halacha, of course you're not, but you are rerouting the image of the masara that your children have. Because in all the books they'll read, and all the svarim they'll study, and all the pictures they'll see, this is how Shabbos looks. This is how our masara has treated Shabbos. Women light candles. Men make hamotzi and kiddush. And that's how Shabbos proceeds. So even though halachically there's nothing aberrant, halachically there's consistency, it's harder for your kids to feel that they belong to this chain of tradition. And you have to decide what's more important. I can't tell you what's more important. Maybe giving a, a voice to your wife and having her make kiddush is more important, but just know you're paying a cost. And you have to decide what the cost is. And it's always true, because it's a three-dimensional equation. Th- three variables to the equation. Halacha, minhag, and masar. There's probably a fraction, there's like a, th- a fourth root, and that's not halacha, not minhag, not masara, but what's appropriate. There's also certain things that are appropriate. So my kids would always ask me in Israel, can you play ball on Shabbos? So I would never say the word aser about something which is an aser. Because once you start to stretch halacha to areas that it doesn't belong, you dilute the meaning of aser. When I say the word aser, you should shake in your pants. If it's aser, it's aser. You don't get close to it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. There is no excuse. There's no justification. When I say the word aser, I mean I. When halacha says the word aser, it's aser. Period. If you use that word too frequently, you start to dilute it. You start to cheapen it, like any inflation. So you say that it's us to play ball on Shabbos. I experienced that to a degree. When I was in high school, I went to a more Haredi-oriented high school. And no one ever distinguished between things which were us and things which they were discouraging. So, uh, Basar Bachalov was us or Treif was us looking at girls was us looking at newspapers was us listening to the radio was us watching movies were us You know what happened? A lot of us left high school. And we saw good, God-fearing Jews who read newspapers and listened to the radio. And, and well, if they told us that listening to the radio is usher, and that was bunk. Maybe everything else is bunk. You know how many friends of mine are no longer from today? Because the whole system fell apart. So you have to be very, very careful to distinguish between, is it usher, or it's just not appropriate. Playing ball on Shabbos is not usher. I don't think it's appropriate in most instances to play ball on Shabbos. There's a Yiddish expression for that. Unfortunately, there isn't the Hebrew equivalent, and the absence of the Hebrew equivalent, I think, is telling of the Israeli culture. <laughs> What's the expression? It's not appropriate. By the way, not, we haven't even started the year yet. I'm very tired tonight, so I don't even know if we'll get to this year. By the way, this is a great opportunity for you all to reinforce an issue which has fallen into complete neglect over the last 20 years because of cultural forces <laughs> and over the last two, three years because of Corona. Getting dressed for Shabbos is not a minhag. Getting dressed for Shabbos in Shabbos clothing is halacha. It's called kavod Shabbos. And if you violate that halacha, it's not as severe as a malacha. It's not like you turned on a light on Shabbos and drove a car, but you haven't fulfilled kavod Shabbos. Now the problem is, it's a little bit subjective. Api Kabbalah, if you want to know, Api Kabbalah, Kabbalah says you have to wear white on Shabbos. Period. Like a malacha sheres. 
And therefore, if you want to fulfill not just the social and contextual elements of Kavit Shabbos, but also fulfill a Kabbalah, that means wearing a white shirt on Shabbos. But let's say Kabbalah is not your thing right now. I can't tell you where that line is drawn. Because for some people, in some cases, if you're not, if you walked into America right now and you weren't wearing a tie and a jacket, oh man, that's not Shabbos stick. And you went back in a time machine, you didn't wear a big cylinder hat on Shabbos, oh my goodness, you're not Shabbos stick. So we don't wear cylinder hats. Many of you don't wear ties and jackets. But pay attention. Pay attention to your dress. The best I could give you, the best I could give you, is it has to be a significant upgrade from your daily dress. It has to be something you would not wear during the week unless you're going to a chasen at the Suda's Mitzvah. So things like just a sweatshirt on Shabbos, or a pair of pants that are your normal pair of pants, those are areas that I think are already neglected. Now, how does this come about? Because our culture took clothing less seriously. Because we were searching for panemius and we're searching for authenticity. So we de-emphasize and we decentralize the importance of externals. But Shabbos is based on externals. Kohen Gadol can say, why don't you wear those begadim? I'm a Kohen Gadol. I'm a sincere, pious man. I have all of Amisol's needs in my mind. There's protocol. There's ceremony. There is an ambience. There is a milieu that a Kodesh Baruch Hu demands. And it's the same on Shabbos. I mean, it's the same on Shabbos as you wear it. Kodesh. But the same type of demands apply to Shabbos. And the second part that wrecked our Shabbos clothing routine is Corona, because we spent two years at home, and we weren't in shul, and even when we went to shul, these were informal minyanim. So this is a great time to remind you that as you're planning your Shabbos image, and there's Hashem for the rest of your life, clothing, big day Shabbos, is called Kavod Shabbos. It's based in a Pesach in Yeshaya. It's in that very, very limited range of mitzvahs, which we call Divrei Kabbalah. Most mitzvahs either fall into the category of Diraisa or Dirabanan. There are four mitzvahs that fall into the category of Divrei Kabbalah. They're not their Isa, but they're not their Rabbanon because they're mentioned in Tanakh. Anyone know what they are? One is coming up. Which mitzvahs are mentioned in Tanakh? This is a reflexive question. Yes? All four of them in Esther? Well, in Esther. All the mitzvahs of Purim. The Purim mitzvahs are in Megillus Esther. What other mitzvahs are mentioned in Tanakh? The Dalit Samos. Pasuk in Zechariah, Tzom HaRaviv, Tzom HaChamishi, Yelechem Beisotel, L'Sosun, L'Simcha. What else? Yeshaya, Nunchas, Kavot Shabbos and Onik Shabbos, V'chibadetam Me'asos Melacha, Azzisanagal Hashem. And according to Sunday, there's a Pasuk that talks about Halal. So Chatsi Halal may also be regular Halal's Deiraisa, Chatsi Halal may be Divrei Kabbalah. So they're called Divrei Kabbalah, the Nafkamin is, if you have a suffix, whether you're Mekayim Divrei Kabbalah, you're Machmir like a Deiraisa, even though it's not a real Deiraisa. So if you're not sure if you read Megillus Esther, you have to repeat it again. But if you're not sure if you've made a Bracha Rishona, you don't repeat it again because it's Deirabanan. So this is all introduction. I don't know how we got to that. Let's return to Masara, right? Who's your Rebbe? Where do you belong? Okay. But every single Jew that ever lived has one Rebbe. And that's the Kodesh Baruch and we say it every day, Hamlami Torah Lamu Yisrael. And we hope that in our learning, Akadosh Baruch Hu provides Siyatah Deshmaya. And if you don't Siyatah Deshmaya, you'll never be successful in learning. So hone in on that tefillah. Avinu Avrachman, Hamrachim, Rachim, Aleinu, Vesein, Lebeinu, Lahavinu, Laskil, Lishmo, Lamod, Lamed. Famous story between Chaim Velazhin, was the founder of the first modern yeshiva. He founded the yeshiva in 1801, 1803, the Yitzchayim Yeshiva. And he once met a friend of his, Rabbi Ephraim Zalman Margolis, who also started yeshiva. And his yeshiva didn't really gain any traction. So Rabbi Ephraim asked Rabbi Chaim, how come your yeshiva was so spectacularly successful and my yeshiva belly flopped? And Rabbi Chaim asked him, what did you do the first day you opened yeshiva? 
So Rafaim Zaman Margolis told them the first day we opened our yeshiva, we had parties and mesivos and dancing and simcha. Rabchaim Velazhin said the day they opened Velazhin, they fasted. And they davened to Hashem for Siyatha Dishmaya. Because no human effort will ever be successful without HaKadosh Baruch Hu's assistance. Nothing. Certainly not Torah, certainly not the Mishkan. So when we learn Torah, we hope that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is teaching us Torah. Here's an interesting question. Have you felt HaKadosh Baruch Hu teaching you Torah this year? No, don't raise your hand yes or no, it's not a poll. Can you reach a level of recognizing words in Gemara as the will of HaKadosh Baruch Hu? And when you're working hard, how, how, what's the hardest you've worked this year to understand a part of Torah? How many hours have you dedicated towards a particular Tosmos or a particular Sugya? Or have you bailed in a second and got a little too difficult? Rav Aaron once told us that if you don't understand the Tosmos, that is not an intellectual limitation. If you don't understand the Tosmos, it's a moral flaw. Because if you cared enough about Tosmos, and you saw it as a word of a Kodesh Baruch Hu, you would take every possible effort and not stop and not sleep. Let's say you know, just to put it into a different context, let's say you knew that someone had injected you with a virus and you only had 48 hours to live unless you found an antidote. What would you do in the next 48 hours? You wouldn't sleep, you wouldn't eat, you wouldn't go to, you know, I'm a little tired. I don't know. I'll go relax a little in my room right now. You know your life depended on it. So you would try your hardest over the next 48 hours to find an antidote. If you saw Torah that way as the most eternal engagement of this world, then if you don't understand it, tells us it would bother you. And you'd work hard and you'd push your mind and you'd explore and you. Same thing with memory. If I asked you the Tosas you learned a month ago, how many could respond? How many could repeat it? If I asked you the Super Bowl score, you probably could, or some other sports event that you're a fan of. So, how come you remember the Super Bowl, you remember the Tosas? Because memory is not just a capacity, memory is, is a will, memory is a decision. You store information that you think is important. So, if you're not going to forget your birthday, you're not going to forget the day of a flight home, yet you forget information that you deem as less important if we don't internalize it as much. So, your view of Torah, your success this year in Torah, is not just how smart you are and how intellectually gifted you are and how well you can crack a Tosas on first glance. It's effort, it's toil, it's care, it's a decision, it's an emotional attitude. So Kodesh Baruch Hu was our Rebbe, but he was Moshe's Rebbe in Parashat Kitisa. And the Torah actually describes the delivery of Torah to Moshe from a Kodesh Baruch Hu in Parashat Kitisa. And tonight we're going to talk about three words in that description. Okay, that's all an introduction to the following Pasuk. Vayitein al Moshe, kechalosan ledaber ito. First Pasuk, source number one. Kodesh Baruch Hu delivered Torah to Moshe, when he finished, when he concluded, ledaber ito, to talk to Moshe Rabbeinu. Kichaloto ledaber ito. Kichaloso ledaber ito. We're first going to talk about the word kaloso. Then we'll talk about the word ito. Then we'll comment on the word vayitain. And all of these interpretations and all these elaborations will be based on the Medrash. Why does the Torah describe the delivery of Torah to Moshe from Hashem as kichaloso? It's implicit, it's understandable. Of course Hashem delivers the Torah to Moshe after they finish learning it. It's like, okay, I finished learning it with you, take the Torah that you've learned and move on. The Torah shouldn't write, Vayitain el Moshe, kechalosel Those are extra words. Vayitain el Moshe, we know that Moshe received the Torah after he studied it for 40 days, not before he studied it for 40 days, because how can you receive the Torah before you study? So Chazal sense in the word kechaloso, the secret for being able to study Torah, and more importantly, how to teach Torah. Let's read Chazal. Vayitain el Moshe, 
Source number base. This is the Medrash. Lama. Amr Shimon ben Lakish. Source number base. Five lines in. Rish Lakish said, Kol shehu motzi tara mipiv. Ve'inan arevin al shomein kechala she'arevin labayla. Noach lo shelo amr. When you teach Torah, you want that Torah to be so exciting and so enticing to the listener, like, like they're seeing their bride. Kechaloso is, Moshe was so excited to receive the Torah that it was like he saw his bride, like a kala, like he walked in under the chuppah. Think about the time you were at a wedding and you saw the face of a chasan when he first saw his kala. Think about what you say, Mare Karen on Yom Kippur. Kechasan, keziv chasan. You look at the, the, the joy and the radiance of a chasan. People are always asking me, give me a tip for teaching. Give me a skill for speaking. Give me a skill to teach Torah to people. I say it's really, really simple. Forget your notes, how well you take notes. Forget this technique or that technique. Just smile when you teach Torah. <coughs> Let people know how much you enjoy Torah. Because if they see you, look at me now teaching Torah like this, and like this, and like this. They'll think it's just something that you strain and something that you work hard and something that's a burden. If they see how much you enjoy Torah, how much it animates you, how excited you are to be a deliverer of Torah, to share Torah, to teach Torah, it's infectious. Forget what you say, how you say it, how you convey it, the body language, the smile. The, think about some of the people you've heard speak in life. and Think about, can you tell that it's enjoyable to them, that it's something which entices them and excites them and chants them? then you're more willing to listen. First of all, it's not just a religious moment, it's also just listening as a speaker. You don't like to listen. I don't like people shouting at me. I don't like when people shout at me. You don't have to shout to emphasize a point. That's why a vocabulary is so important, a healthy vocabulary. Because if you have a healthy vocabulary, you can find the words to lay emphasis and subtlety and de-emphasis and underscore without always shouting just to show how important it is to you. I can just say, it's really crucial to me, it's fundamental, it's seminal, it's viable, it's central. I, I can find the words to lay accent and de-accent ideas without always having to raise my decibel. It's not like listening to people who shout at me. Just stop shouting. I'm listening to your words. Speak loud. I'm willing to listen. So if you're a shouter, people are not going to enjoy the experience. If you're someone that's frowning and grimacing, and I mean, you shouldn't be serious, but do they see that, that there's a passion in your learning. It could be a passion that expresses itself as happiness and joy. It could be a passion that expresses itself as, as passion, right? What is passion? Passion is you care about something more deeply than yourself. That's the definition of passion. What do you care about in life more than yourself? Well, how do I know if I care about something more than myself? The answer is, and here's the litmus, here's the test case, what? And you may not have an answer to this question because you're still building passion. It's alright at the age of 18, not yet to know what passion is. But the litmus of passion is, what am I willing to die for if I had to? We don't have a death wish. We want to live a long life. But if you care about something more than yourself, then if push comes to shove, you have to be willing to die for it. Or else you don't really care about it more than yourself. So if someone has a passion for HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he cares about HaKadosh Baruch Hu more than himself. And therefore, if someone challenged the basic tenets of religion, he'd have to defend Hashem's presence in this world and say, you know, I care about Hashem's presence more than myself. The soldiers in Aza care about our people and our land and its defense more than themselves. And therefore, they're willing, they don't want to die, they're protecting themselves, Baruch Hashem, we're doing our best with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, protecting us, but 
If you care about something more than yourself, you have to be willing to put your life on the line for it, or else you're not at the state of passion. And the joy is that once you feel passion, it inspires you. You feel like you're living for something. You're not just living for the next hour, for the next day, for the next meal, for the next sports event. You're living for something larger than yourself. I'm committed to a larger story, to a larger narrative, to something that's more important than myself. So this is the first tip about teaching Torah. And the first tip about listening to Torah is it something which is enjoyable. You, should, you shouldn't learn in a shir for too long, maybe here or there. But if, if you are going to a shir and you're not excited to go to the shir and you don't walk out with some emotional moment, some spiritual lift and some... Now, it doesn't have to be because the Rebbe is so dazzling and so charismatic. It could just be that the Rebbe puts you in touch with Torah at such a deep level that you walk out and there's some inner moment, there's some inner spirit. Don't just trudge on day after day after day learning in a shir where there's just no, there's no excitement and there's no response and there's no beauty and there's no aesthetic. This is the first thing, the first word which Chazal Darshan. Let's read it again. Let's go back to line number three. What does it mean? Line number three of the Medrash. Milamid. Okay, let's... Let's see, I'm of Shimon ben Lakish. This is the first Russia of Shimon ben Lakish, not about the word Kechaloso, but about the word Ladaber Ito. Milamed, Mashal Talmud, Shalimdo Rabo Tara, line number two, the Rebbe taught him Tara. Ajlo Limdo, before the session began, Hayarav Omer Vuon Acharav. The Rebbe would say, and the Talmud would wait and just repeat, parrot it back, Ona Acharav. Mishalimed also, what is successful Talmud Tara? Omer Lo Rabo. Listen to these next four words. The Rebbe tells the Talmud, Bo, Venomar, Aniviata. The goal of a Rebbe is not to teach. The goal of a Rebbe is to equip a Talmud so that he can learn on his own and teach on his own. Initially, Rebbe speaks, Talmud answers. Ultimately, line number three, Bo, Venomar, Aniviata. Let's speak together. Not me first and you responding, but let's speak together. Namely, you have the capacity to speak on your own. That's why it's so important to us in yeshiva that you give chaburos and you give shihurim and you start to practice. Not just because you'll all be teachers one day, officially. I hope you'll all be teachers one day, even if you're not officially there. Be a kid. How, how many of you know from your communities the person in shul who's not a rebbe, not a rabbi, just a professional, but gave really high-level shihurim? He was the guy when the rabbi was away, he was always ready to step in. He was the one when the rabbi was away, everyone asked, well, we found this problem in the Sefer Torah, what's the halacha? Or the Shabbos clock went out in the downstairs dining room, what's the halacha? Who is that person? And can you dream to be that person? Well, it's within your reach. If you spend the next couple of years learning seriously, you can be that person. So Baruch Hashem, the goal to be a teacher of Torah, to join the great Masara of people that are teaching Torah, doesn't mean that everyone becomes a rabbi. I hope that many of you in this room will realize that the more time you commit to it and the more you make it your profession, the more you can make a change. If you want to make a change in this world, you can't wait for other people to make a change. I have a lot of tolerance in life. The one thing I have no tolerance for is what I call armchair complainers. Don't ever be an armchair complainer. It's easy to complain. If you're not willing to get up and take out the trash, don't complain. If you're not willing to make a difference and sacrifice your own comfort and your own life for something larger, okay, that's your decision. Now, if you want to make the same sacrifices, but then you give up your right to complain. And don't become that person, because we have a lot of people in our world that are armchair complainers. Rabbi Lam, Zechron Levracha, who is the president of Yeshiva University, once was speaking in a forum 
of all the heads of the university. And they were complaining, how come we don't have enough of YU students entering the rabbinate, entering education? And all the rabbis have to be brought from the Lakewood and the Haredi world. And the... So Balaam, evidently, I wasn't in the room, said, stop. Show our hands. Who in this room would be happy if their children became rabbis or teachers? Not one hand was raised. I, I, I mean, this room. He asked about that room. <laughs> Not one hand was raised. He said, so why are you complaining? If you're not willing to dedicate your own children and for your own children to choose that path, why are you complaining? It's not an educational flaw. It's a moral flaw about anything. If you're not willing to be part of the solution, don't complain about it. Maybe you're not willing to be part of the solution. That's a legitimate moral discussion. Legitimate moral decision. Why you want to be part of this solution and another solution. But if you don't have the guts to get up and make a difference, then don't complain about it. Because then you just, you're just dismissing other people rather than Investing an interest in part of the solution. So, do you have a dream? So much, I've told you guys, so much of success in yeshiva is having these long-term dreams. Where is all this heading? If I work hard in yeshiva, what can I become? You have to have that image in front of you almost every day, because especially in this yeshiva, it's dreary, it's tedious, it's hard work, it's not thrills and excitements and adventures and tiulim and tishes. It's day-to-day grind, day-to-day routine, Wash, rinse, repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. You all know that's the road to excellence. The road to excellence is paved with consistency, day-to-day repetition, the same routine. If you diffuse your energy and you splinter your efforts, you'll be at best mediocre. You're never going to be great at something unless you massively invest in it. But you have to keep in mind, who do I want to become like? What do I, what, where is this all heading? If I work hard the next five, six, seven years in my Vodas Hashem, what do I want to be? How do I make a difference in my life? How do I make a difference in other people's life? You have to dream. If you don't dream, those are the two traits that are absolutely crucial for success in any endeavor in life, and particularly in yeshiva, vision and discipline. To have a vision of what you're trying to create, and the discipline to stick to it, even when it's difficult, even when you're tired, even when you haven't slept, even when you're... Discipline, no vision. Unless you're able to combine the two, you're not going to be great. Where are you heading? And do you have the chops and the stick to itiveness and the perseverance day in, day out to put the effort and the investment to get there? It's years. Moderate success can be achieved through moderate effort. Grand success needs massive effort, massive investment. So we're here to try to give you that voice. We don't want you to listen to us. We want you to mimic us. We want you to simulate us. We want you to see how can you love Torah deeply enough to care about it and say, maybe one day I'm going to be a Rebbe-ish personality and it's not just I'm going to listen to Shiram, but I'll give and I'll deliver Torah. One of the best advice I can give for people going back to a non-based medrash is to find someone to teach Torah to. Find someone on campus, find someone that's interested in learning, find someone who has an Adi Shiva experience. Because the second you start to teach, first of all, you force yourself to learn. And second of all, you see yourself as different. It's an image issue. If you see yourself as a Malami Taradam Yisrael, that can theoretically affect your behavior, how you conduct yourself. It, I have to live up to certain standards and live up to certain expectations. So when the Torah writes, by the time they were finished, Moshe wasn't listening anymore. By the time they were finished, HaKadosh Baruch Hu told Moshe, line number three, let's talk together. And then Moshe was tasked with descending the mountain and teaching Am Yisrael. Okay, what is the third word we promised we'd speak about? Kechaloso, 
should be joyful, passionate, exciting, spiritual, like a kala. Number two, ito. It should be a joint endeavor. Not a Rebbe talking and a Talmud listening. What's the third word? Vayitenel Moshe. Stunning medras. Let's read it together. Source Gimel. Davarachav, Vayitenel Moshe. Am Rebbe Avo. Kol Mem Yom. You think you're tired now? Could you imagine? I can't. Can you? Can you imagine not sleeping 40 days and 40 nights? Can you imagine not eating 40 days and 40 nights? Don't ask me to explain it. Moshe did it. I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he succeeded. Was he drinking liquids? Was it a liquid diet? Lechem lochati meim lochasisi. It sounds like it wasn't even a liquid diet. Who knows? They say there's some folklore story that when the Vilna Gon died and he had spent his life sleeping two hours a night and eating moist bread and water because he didn't want to take any time away from his Talmud Torah, when the Vilna Gon died... They called in the doctors, and the doctors, who evidently, I don't know, they did an autopsy, they looked at his body, they an autopsy, obviously, they looked at his body, they said, we don't know how this man died. His body is in a complete, perfect, strong, vigorous state, we don't know how the hair he died. You have to believe, obviously, that if a person learns enough Torah, and connects that deeply to the source of life, to HaKadosh Baruch Hu's will, that obviously he won't get ill, he won't have disease, and he won't die. None of us are at that level, even the Vulnagon. So we have to eat, we have to drink, we have to take care of our bodies. It's see. The Olmachlok seen the Rambam and Rashi. Should a tzaddik see a doctor? The Ramban writes that a tzaddik should not see a doctor. Ideally, if we were a tzaddik, and none of us are tzaddikim enough, we should not see doctors. We should seek spiritual solutions and spiritual remedies to our physical ailments because that's where real medicinal uh, remedies lie. Of course, the Ramban agrees that we're not at that level. The Rambam disagrees. The Rambam, being a doctor himself, that ideally you should see that. It doesn't affect our lives, because even if you hold like the Ramban, we're not at that level. We can't rely on spiritual remedies for, for, for our own experiences and our own ailments. So Moshe, after 40 days, Hayalomi Tarvishokhech, line number two. He kept forgetting his Torah. Amrulai, line number two, Ribon Halam, Yeshli Mem Yom, Davar. I've spent 40 days and I don't know anything. Now that the 40 days were up and Moshe tried, Hashem then gifted Torah to Moshe Rabbeinu, implanting it into his neshama. So here's the question, guys. If Moshe was going to fail at learning Torah, and Hashem would have to gift it to him anyway, why go through all this song and dance of him trying to accomplish Torah? Let Hashem just gift it to Moshe with all, without all the effort, without all the waste, without all the toil. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the end is going to deliver Torah to Moshe supernaturally by implanting a chip into Moshe's brain, why go through the 40 days of hardship? Why go through the 40 days of suffering? Why go through the 40 days of deprivation? So here's the answer. First of all, because Moshe reaches certain awarenesses and certain attitudes and certain traits that are crucial that he can only reach after 40 days. Number one, humility. It takes a lot of humility to say you don't know something. Moshe has that humility because he's the most humble person on earth. So he reaches the state, learn to say you don't know. One of the traits of humility is accepting the limitations of your own knowledge. Not trying to mask or hide or conceal the limits of knowledge. Here's a nice mathematical equation to remember as you grow and build your identity. You ready? Poise, P-O-I-S-E, equals confidence plus limitation. You're confident in what you are, and you're confident in your strengths, and you're confident in your talents, 
and you accept and understand your, you know, accept your limitations, but you understand at any given point what those limitations are. And together they create a poised person. When we say a person is poised, he knows what he can do, what he can't do, at least at this stage. Obviously, you always want to push back the frontiers, and you're not afraid to say, this is not my talent, this is not what I have right now. I don't have this knowledge, I don't have this skill, I don't have this capacity. You may poise in sports also, right? Think about athletes who are very poised players. What does that mean? They don't necessarily have breakout, spectacular athletic ability like some of the great athletes, but they know what function they do well, and they do it and they stick to their game. They're a great rebounder. They're a great defender. They're a great uh, relief pitcher. Whatever sport they are, that's playing athletics with poise. You don't try to do what you're not skilled at. You don't try to operate outside of your lane. You stick to your lane. So Moshe Rabbeinu has the humility and the parallel trait, which is part of humility, intellectual honesty to know how little they know. Let me ask you the following question. I'm asking this question to the boys that have been here seven months. I'm asking this question to the boys that have been here for two months or so or a month. And I expect the answer to be the exact same answer. Are you a bigger Talmud Chacham now that you've been in Yeshiva for seven months or a month? Or are you bigger Amharats? I hope the answer is you're a bigger Amharats. Because now that you've poured open the depths of Torah, you know better than you ever knew how little you know. Because when you were in high school, you thought you knew it all. Because you got 100 on the test of two dapim of Kiddushin, Dat Chavchas which everyone knows. Mitzvah Zabban Olav. Wow, I got a hundred. Mitzvah Zabban Olav. And you thought you were the biggest Tamachachal on the block. And now you realize you know nothing. That's a bracha. The more you know, the more you know you don't know. If Einstein were in this room, who would be able to explain their ignorance in physics better, him or I? He could. I'm such an artist in physics, I don't even know where to start. I don't, know what I, even, I don't even know what I don't know. Einstein knew so much of physics that he could say, these are the areas of physics that I've been able to analyze and articulate. This phenomena, I just don't get. We don't have the science to decode it or to decipher it. So he knows more physics, but knowledge of something so large, and certainly of something so infinite as Torah, endows you with humility. And that's why throwing open the full sweep of Torah should be a humbling experience. And not just Amun Amaris, but because I know so little, it has to affect my deportment, my image. Not in a way that, that, um, that incapacitates or cripples me or makes me feel less about myself, but in the grand scheme of things, being exposed to the majesty of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the majesty. Why do we want you? Why, why don't we just learn Dafyomi all day? Because sadly enough, 90% of you in this room, hopefully, 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 Shir HaMalos Mimamakim Krasich Hashem, your Talmud Torah investment will be something akin to Dafyomi Plus. You'll learn Dafyomi, a little bit of Ian, but essentially, if most of your Torah, of the 70% of you in this room, 75% of that Torah will be Dafyomi, okay? Maybe 30% will be Rabbanim, and you'll sit in Karla and learn Ian all day. And of the people that will learn Dafyomi, you'll be in a little bit. Most of the massive Torah that's going to be studied by the boys in this room are going to be Dafyomi or something akin to that. So why the heck are we spending seven hours a day asking you to analyze Bohr? And ask you to analyze Aish, and ask you to get into three Tosfin and two Rashbas. Why is Lambdas so central to this yeshiva, and to every yeshiva in the world, even though not every boy in that room is going to sustain that type of learning? And the answer is majesty, depth, enormity, immortality. Until you can see that beauty of the network logic of Hashem, you'll never see the sweep of Hashem's intellect. 
and you'll never be enchanted with Torah. So you're, hopefully this is enchanting you with Torah so that even when you learn Daf Yomi, if I told you in your right hand you can hold an ice cube, in your left hand you can touch the tip of a glacier, your hand would be holding the same surface area of ice. But I hope your left hand will be shaking. Because your left hand knows that it's touching something much deeper and broader than an ice cube. Even they're holding the same surface area. If I told you you could swim a lap, and it's your choice, you could swim a lap in an Olympic-sized pool, or we'll put two ships at a distance from one another in the ocean, and you could swim from one ship to the other the same distance in the ocean. Wouldn't you choose the ocean? You're coming into contact with the same cubic metrage of water. But swimming in the ocean means you're part of something that's so large and so beyond and so enormous that it should be exhilarating. So one day, even if you've just learned Dafyomi, do you know that underneath the surface of that page are the recorded thoughts and devoted Torah study of the greatest minds over the last 2,000 years of Jewish history? And when you read that Gemara, you're not necessarily following that trail of the Rashba and the Ramban and the Afrika Yam and the Mach Nefraim, but you know it exists. And therefore you're enchanted. And therefore you're part of it. So let's put it this way. You don't come to Yeshiva to become an Amaretz. You're an Amaretz before you start Yeshiva. But before you start Yeshiva, you're an Amaretz about the fact that you're an Amaretz. Now that you're in Yeshiva, you're a Talmud Chacham about the fact that you're an Amaretz. You know that you don't know. That's why Moshe has to go through the experience. Before he tried for 40 days to understand it, he didn't know that he didn't know. After 40 days, he realized the sweep in the enormity of Torah. And he knew that he didn't know. We late from, uh, okay, we're late from our... We'll stop when it be. We'll continue this some other time. Come. Sorry, 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 everyone. Sorry. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Sorry, sorry.